Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. To me, the, the Israel-Palestine issue has so much confusion. It has so much denial, projection, blame, rationalization that I consider it an archetype for suffering and conflict. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching me live on Facebook and various other places. This is also being recorded so that it will be a podcast. I'm hosting a series of conversations with people that I find interesting, writers, artists, musicians, social activists uh, from all over the ideological spectrum. And today I have as my guest a writer and thinker, Rich Four, who has written uh, a lot of things, but right now has a new book called Wake Up and Reclaim Your Humanity. And Rich... Um, I guess could be described as someone who is uh, a human rights activist in the broadest sense of the word with a background in healing, uh, care for people who I suppose can be described as someone who almost had a conversion experience, very similar to mine, although his seemed to have happened more quickly and mine was drawn out. I come from a fundamentalist right-wing evangelical background that helped engineer the anti-abortion movement and really welded the Republican Party and the evangelical far right together in the 1970s and 80s. And I repented. And in the true sense of that word, that means change, change your mind, change your behavior. And by the early 1990s, was really out of the movement and have since been writing, teaching, thinking, uh, discussing with people about that journey out based on a view of compassion and inclusivity, which is simply not where evangelicals come from. Rich comes from a similar background in that when it comes to the Israeli and Palestinian conflict and the state of Israel and the Jewish community and all the different permutations of that from the right to the left, ideological and so forth, he had a change of mind. So his books and his writing is really from the point of view of someone who in that community is very similar to me in my evangelical background in a kind of an odd way. We would understand each other. So before we get into that, Rich, let me just ask you a little bit about yourself. Tell me about your background in the healing profession, if we can put it that way, before we get into some of the politics and social issues. Just We were talking before we came here into this live discussion about that. Tell me a little about that. That's such an interesting way to, to begin one's uh, journey. Well, I was always interested in healing, and I was always interested in yoga, tai chi, you know, the healing arts. Mm. And uh, in the in the late 70s, there was an article in, I think, Yoga Journal about mm -hmm. a man by the name of Mayor Schneider, 
who was an Israeli who was born blind with numerous uh, vision problems, genetic and otherwise, hmm. who had healed his vision as a teenager. And in the article, they interviewed him and he made a few comments that were really felt really profound to me, something not from an intellectual point of view, but mm. from the point of view of someone who had really been through something. And he also described some things he can do with his body that, that, that uh, indicated that he's somehow really been able to relax and open his body. Mm. A number of years after that. Would, would like, you call that a kind of a deep form of meditation just to put a handle on it for people? Uh, in a way, yes. In a way, his work is a form of meditation. It's also a form of Qigong, you know, the Chinese healing system, even though he has never studied Qigong, but he mm. discovered the principles within his own being. Mm. And about 15, no more than probably about, yeah, about 15, 16 years after I read that article, I was living in Albuquerque and I happened to run across a poster of, an, of a seminar, of a week-long seminar that he was going to be giving in Albuquerque hmm. within a week or so of that discovery. So I, I ended up attending that seminar, and I was fascinated with the work he could do. Like, for example, uh, at the beginning of the seminar, he had a young woman who had severe scoliosis. You hmm. could see it. It looked like a, her spine looked like a question mark, the shape yeah. of a question. He had her lie on her stomach, and he massa lightly massaged her spine for about... 20 seconds and you could see it straighten. Mm. And then he said, well, your, your nervous system is not ready to accept this change. So I'm going to stop and it's going to revert, but it just is an indication of what is possible. And we mm. watched the spine return back to its question mark mm. uh, position. Anyway, so I studied with him for a number of years. He was in San Francisco, even though he had, he was an Israeli, but he had moved to San Francisco and yeah. I studied with him at the center for self healing where he had, the most amazing and diverse uh, array of people with various ailments, muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis, uh, uh, diseases that are so rare, hardly anyone's ever heard of them. Yeah. Uh, spinal muscular atrophy, all kinds of vision problems and his success in working with people, not curing people, but bringing them great relief and great improvement was mm. astounding. Yeah. And so I really learned a lot about, you know, the nature of healing and how, you know, how it's possible if you believe in yourself, mm. how it's possible to affect some positive change. Yeah, I'm glad you say not healing, but change and positive change, because, of course, that takes it out of the realm of faith healing into a realm of mind right. over matter and and meditation and so forth, which makes it sound much more rational uh, to someone like me who comes from a background where, of course, the evangelical movement, you know, you take three steps and you're tripping over some fraudulent character raising money by quote healing people right. this sort of thing um and i knew all those guys back in the 70s and the 80s before i bailed so do me a favor uh, i read your book um online and uh, not online on kindle so i don't have a copy here can you hold up wake up reclaim and reclaim your humanity perfect i can see that there and then what read the subtitle underneath everything else which the is subtitle the subtitle is Essays on the Tragedy of Israel-Palestine. Right. And now your perspective on that um, is as someone who has lived in Israel, who has family living in Israel, and I guess your own family ranges from uh, not necessarily ultra-Orthodox, but what, what was the group that one of your family members was in that we were discussing? Well, my identical twin brother is a Chabad Lubavitcher. Which okay. is a Hasidic, one of the Hasidic sects that which they consider themselves Orthodox. 
Yes. And he has a, a, a large family and very typical of the, that group. Right. That's uh, true. Many, many kids, lots and lots of grandchildren and so forth. Very much equivalent in the Christian community of certain types of conservative Roman Catholics or homeschooling right. evangelicals, you know, on a farm somewhere. It's very much the same vibe. Wouldn't you say that that those branches of of Judaism and Christianity kind of understand each other, in addition to which on the Christian side, at least here in America, you have a vast evangelical Christian Zionist movement, which often is more, uh, I, I can put it this way, um, Zionist in its views than most uh, people who I know um, in the Jewish community. Now, that's kind of sort of an oddity. We'll get to that in the you know, the whole pressure of uh, in the Trump years and moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and so forth. But I want to start at a very different point of your book than your book today. And that is just the coincidence of the fact that we are talking about this as the last regime in Israel has just fallen apart and been replaced by a coalition that ranged from the Arab uh, politicians all the way to the far right uh, in Israel. So let's stop for a minute. And just as an Israel expert that you are, what is going on right now in the state of Israel politically after these 12 years, isn't it, of the last prime minister, BB? Yes, 12 years, yes. Yeah, that he could have hung on to power and sort of did what Trump would have loved to do if he had had <laughs> umpteen right. terms here in America. They're very That's much right. clones of each other. Yes. Talk, talk to me about modern day Israel right now. Forget the issues that motivate you and your change. We will get to that. Tell us what's going on. Well, uh, one of the things I think is going on is that the religious right is is growing and becoming stronger, and the more liberal members of Israeli society are seeing, to a certain extent, an exodus. Mm. A lot of people have left Israel, come back to the United States or wherever they came from, and they tend to have been the more liberal Labor Party, uh, you know, arena of the yeah. Israeli population. Um, it's because, you know, well, Netanyahu made deals with the religious right all the time. And so they gained so much power. Hmm. And the set now, of course, the settler movement, uh, the settler movement, only about a fifth of the settlers are considered ideological or religious settlers. Hmm. However, they have so much power and they're so uh, uh, relentless hmm. in, in their positions uh, that they really affect all of Israeli society. Hmm. The, the Labour Party and Meretz, the two more socialist left-leaning parties, hmm. are very weak. And I, I pretty much said ten years ago that it was it was Israel was too far gone. That hmm. if there was really going to be change, if there was really going to be peace, it had to come from the United States. Hmm. And at the time, I said it had to come from the U.S. Jewish population. Hmm. But 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 the but the U.S. Jewish population now is becoming less important to Israel and certainly to Netanyahu than mm. the Christian evangelical movement that believes in the second coming. Yeah, uh, and there's an irony there because, of course, if the second coming happened, as described by fundamentalist Christians that I was raised with, it means that all but 144,000 Jews in Israel will be liquidated Correct. And Jesus will reign on earth and and basically American evangelicals will show up and govern. I mean, that's somewhat facetious, but not really. No. So it's a very weird, it's a very weird symbiotic relationship. We're kind of going backwards here, but I like this. I, I want to pursue this. It seems to me as someone who's who's not Jewish, but who I spent seven months in Israel making a documentary with my father once, um, and then another couple months on a pilgrimage to uh, Orthodox, I don't mean Jewish Orthodox, but Christian Orthodox sites 
when I was looking at the Greek Orthodox Church, and then I went from there to Mount Athos. So I've I've dipped in and out of Israeli society, and of course have many friends who are Israelis and so on. But um, it seems to me there's an odd relationship between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United States in this in this regard, and that is that in America we have a huge group of people who are the equivalent of the Wahhabist imams in Saudi Arabia pushing us to the right and who want a theocracy here. Yes, I agree. One of whom is on the Supreme Court now in in the new justice there, Coney Barrett, who comes from a a far right evangelical, quote, Catholic group. Um, Israel has the same thing going on, not just with the settler movement, but the the hard right of the the religious groups. And then, of course, Saudi Arabia is being run by a royal family that are non-religious, but have played ball with the equivalent of their far right orthodox imams. Right. Can you riff on that for a minute? Just because a lot of people talk about America as if it's unique and we have the far right and there's these evangelicals who elected Trump. And I keep trying to remind them this is a worldwide phenomena of Hindu nationalism, Wahhabist Islam, Orthodox Judaism going to the right in Israel. Um, what's going on in the world that you and me are living in the in the 21st century, and we essentially are fighting Middle Ages battles between a theocratic Roman Catholic Church trying to suppress the Enlightenment, if you want to put it in those terms, and any kind of sense of progress, shared humanity, um, inclusivity. And I don't think Israel is different. I think it's more of the same, and I think the same about the U.S. It's a worldwide movement towards fundamentalist, hard, right, religious, kind of indoctrinated intolerance. I totally agree with you, Frank. You know, the first thing I would say is that all of these groups, what they have in common, regardless of whether it's they call themselves Christians or Muslims or Jews, is an ideology of us against them. Hmm. It's a tribal ideology. Now, Mm -hmm. in my books, I talk about the root of suffering, Hmm. which I say is the attachment to a presumed, limited and mortal identity and to the beliefs and images that emanate from and reinforce that presumption. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that that who we think we are, I mean, I always thought I'm Jewish. That was my that was how I identified myself, more so than being an American. Well, what if I had been stolen at birth and, and raised in Saudi Arabia? I yeah. wouldn't even right. I would yeah. have still been the same physical form with the same mm-hmm. mind I was born with, although it would have been conditioned differently. Yeah. But that's the point. It would have been conditioned differently. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is that when you grow up with a strong identity to one group or another and you inherit or absorb the beliefs and images of that group, mm-hmm. and using Judaism as a very good example, the fear of another Holocaust, the victim ideology, the, mm-hmm. the uh the the idea that the world is anti-Semitic and hates Jews, and therefore we need a strong, invincible country that we can call our own. All of that is based on fear, and fear is the veil that colors the way we see the world, the fear being the attachment to a primitive or unique, you know, to a singular tribe or ideology. Mm-hmm. So that anything that 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 any ideas and beliefs that are outside of the ideas and belief of that ideology, religion, identity, they're interpreted as threats. Yeah. Well, you know, one one proof, and I'm not interrupting you, I'm going to ask you to jump back in and go further. But one proof of what you're saying is true, is that I've known who you are, but we've never met before. And yet, uh, here I was raised in an evangelical right wing background. And not only do I understand what you're saying, 
I totally get it on a visceral gut level, because if you have been homeschooled in an evangelical background, one of the purposes of homeschooling was to protect you from the world. In other words, that you would never even encounter an opposite opinion. You were so sheltered. That was the purpose. And it came from this idea of victimology or victimhood, that it's us against them. And of course, that fit very well with Trump's whole idea of fake news, because I was raised to believe that if it wasn't in the Bible, it was fake. Thus, you know, the scientists may say, fill in the blank, gays are born that way. uh, The earth is an old earth. Evolution is true. But our Bible says, and then that would always be. And of course, it always put you in a defensive crouch because all the evidence of your eyes were um, that none of this is true in the way they meant it in a literal sense. And so you had to be protected from confronting that. And I think when you look at the way uh, these societies become closed societies to outsiders in one way or another. Um, I don't even know if theocracy is the right word because, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it to me is exactly what you're saying in terms of an ideological thing that, you know, I love the idea you bring up that if you've been kidnapped at birth, raised in Saudi Arabia, or as a devout Roman Catholic in, in you know, Italy in the Middle Ages or wherever, you'd be the same person, but you'd be completely different conditions. So how does a man like you come to a point where you at least begin to free yourself of some of that conditioning and change, you know, change your mind. It's rare you meet people who change their minds. I'm one, you're one, there must be others. How did that happen? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack it has to be said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. You know, I think uh, part of it is that I had friends who were very open-minded and very uh, knowledgeable and had had spiritual experiences of their own. They had Mm. kind of uh, gone beyond their indoctrination in life. Mm. And I always, from the time I was a kid, I always wanted to know the truth. And if I did something or believed something and used a belief to criticize somebody or hurt somebody, Mm. and I found out I was wrong, I would feel so guilty about it. Mm. And so what happened was, uh, well, I explained it in the book. In my case, what happened was during the second Lebanon war, at the beginning of the second Lebanon war in July of 2006, Mm. I was very upset about Hezbollah's attack in northern Israel. They killed Israeli three Israeli soldiers and abducted two. And then mm. Israel retaliated the next day by bombing and Lebanon and beginning the second Lebanon war. I was very upset, but what but through a coincidence, an old Jewish friend of mine who was at the time much more open-minded than me and who had studied this Israel-Palestine subject for a number of years happened to call me up just to tell me he was going to be out west from New mm. Jersey. And I started complaining. I was so obsessed with the Arab world, what I saw as the Arab world's obsession with destroying Israel, mm. that I complained to him for like two hours. 
Mm. And he was very relaxed and mellow and he hardly said anything. And because he hardly said anything and didn't argue with me, I, I discovered that I realized this afterwards, he gave me the space to look a little further into the issue. Because at one point he said, Richie, uh, that's not right. Why don't, why don't you read books by these two Jewish Israeli professors who are highly regarded? And he gave me the names, Baruch Kimmeling and Tanya Reinhardt. And they were Jewish, they were Israeli, so they weren't much of a threat. And after we hung up, I said to myself, because I had never studied the subject. Yeah. I, after we hung up, I realized, you know, maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe yeah. I haven't studied this subject. Mm. And that's when it all began. I then went to the library, got books by Jewish authors only. And in the midst of reading one of the books at, and finding out in a very meticulously documented book whose sources were Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Beth Salem, which is the Israeli Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories. In reading this book, I went through a series of emotions, shock mm. at what Israel was doing to these poor people, anger that Israel was doing it in my name as a Jew, embarrassment that I had been such a closed-minded idiot for so long, mm, mm. And, and so on. And then what eventually, what eventually happened was I had this spontaneous awakening beyond identity, beyond my, yeah. beyond my presumed and mortal identity as a Jew. I couldn't find an identity. And, I, and at that point, I recognized my common humanity with all people. Mm. I literally realized that I was no less Muslim or Christian than I was Jew or no less mm. Palestinian or Israeli as I was American mm. or Chinese or, or Sudanese. And in that, in that uh, event, with it, I didn't think anything. All these insights came to me, mm. the, the recognition of how what I was denying about Israel and about myself, because my identity was so tied to Israel, mm -hmm. that I was then projecting my prejudice, which I didn't see as prejudice, I was projecting my prejudice onto the other and blaming the other for my yeah. own suffering. Yeah, now going back to what you were saying earlier, because that's obviously a very moving story and in a way almost would get you brand, if somebody was looking for a label, they, they would say, well, Rich Four is a Jewish mystic in a way because you had a sort of mystical experience of enlightenment um, right. that, that replicates in history in, in, in many wonderful ways. I mean, this, this moment of breakthrough is, is something unique to you for this issue, but it's a phenomenon that occurs with people, whether it's an artistic breakthrough, someone sees something, you know, and they write a book or whatever. But it seems to me that the thing that you and I have in common is that we both come out of backgrounds that are defensive because we believe we are victims, even though we were the majority. So right. that you have the defensive crouch within Israel against the Palestinians who are, you know, obviously not in charge and it's completely asymmetrical. Right. You have the same thing in the U.S. here where at times in my life and sadly because my family helped this happen, you've had a Republican president, majorities in Congress, Supreme Court majority, and yet evangelical, the white evangelical voter is still going around talking about they as if somehow... Um, you know, the secular media, the academic community, the liberals, the Democrats are going to come storming into our house uh, if we're not heavily armed with an AR-15 and rounds of ammunition. You know, what's the scenario here? They will come and then, you know, take our kids, whatever it is. And, and that's been turned against the gay community. Right now, it's very much turned against the transgender community. It has been turned against Jews by, by American, white, uh, Christian, anti-Semites. 
who in the 1930s and 40s, you know, were ready to follow the, the, the fascist regimes of Europe to flip right. it there for a minute. But it's always the same kind of reaction. It's that we are the poor little victim and we've got to do all this stuff to defend ourselves. And of course, the irony is often it's the it's actually the majority in charge who is acting that way. Right. They're far from being the victims. They are actually the oppressor. And that very much has been the case in the U.S. with our racism and and anti and, and homophobia and the reaction against women asking for any kind of place at the table. So, again, I don't think this is unique to the Israeli-Palestinian situation. I think it's right. a phenomenon that has to do with an, uh, this sort of we, us versus them Look, yes. I just can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I totally agree with you. Yes. Now, one thing, the reason, one of the reasons I focus on the Israel-Palestine issue is because, well, first of all, I was Jewish. I was, uh, I was part of the, pro, I was part of the uh, outrage and yeah. the uh, the projection onto Palestinians of what Israel itself was actually doing, the negative things it was doing. But to me, the, the Israel-Palestine issue has so much confusion, it has so much denial, projection, blame, rationalization, that I consider it an archetype for suffering and conflict. And yes. so what I say, I mentioned this in my book, I think, is that if the Israel-Palestine issue could be resolved, it would serve as a model for the rest of the world, yes. and maybe could set a trend that might change the minds of people not related, not necessarily related to Israel-Palestine. Mm. Um, but but I totally agree with you. It is a certain consciousness that somehow uh, affects a lot of people. There's an, a, an American Indian term called Watiko. I don't know mm. if you ever heard of it. W-E-T-I-K-O. And no, Watiko, Watiko is like the virus the, the, from the uh, from the Native American point of view, it's like a virus that infects so many people, and mm. it's a virus <laughs> of wrong thinking and negative thinking and inhumane thinking, mm. and it it just grows and grows and grows and takes over, you know, much of a wor of the world or much mm. of parts of the world, and it just causes uh, tremendous tremendous suffering. Wherever I don't want to wax I don't want to wax too personal, uh, and I and I love what you were just saying there, but. Um, at least on my own experience, you know, the fact that I began to write novels uh, that drew on my evangelical background and that evangelicals did not like because they cut quite close to home. They were actually works of humor and quite light. In other words, if someone outside of our community read them, they would just read them as a funny book. But inside the community, it was like, these are things you don't, quote, make fun of. You see what I'm saying? So I yes. understand. And then by the time I was writing memoirs and so on and so on, I was drawing the ire of people, there were members of my family not speaking to me anymore and so on. I would imagine in your journey that you talk about and this book of yours, Wake Up and Reclaim Your Humanity, reflects on um, that you paid on a personal side of relationships with family members and other people in the Jewish community. You must also be persona non grata in some circles. I am. I am. Uh, you know, some people don't talk to me much anymore, uh, but, you know, to me, it's that's their business. That's their problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say I have, uh, you know, I had a lot of Jewish friends growing up hmm. and they all knew that I was intelligent, that, that they could rely on me, that I didn't lie to them, that I was a loyal yeah. friend. And yet none of them will read my book. <laughs> and I tell them, you know, you can read the book in the comfort of your own home. Yeah. No one has to know you're reading it. You don't yeah. have to believe a word you say. You can put it down whenever you want. And they still won't do it because it's why that, not the fear of what they may encounter, the fear of what 
may be reflected about them to them yeah. by reading the book. It's like looking in the mirror. And it's interesting because- you say that because exactly the same phenomena happened with my memoir, Crazy for God. And that is, I have many nieces and nephews and people who stayed in the evangelical community. And out of maybe 50 people in that sort of next, the, the full family circle, plus a little bit beyond, I'd say maybe two of them, they all thought about it. They've all heard about it. They've all gotten complaints from people saying, why has Frank Schaefer gone off and done this crazy thing? And it's, and, and basically it's like, well, I, I looked at it, but you know, it's almost this, the territory is so sacred to them right. that by questioning it, you have committed not just a heresy, but a kind of a, uh, you've, you, you have, you know, stood up and peed on the altar. I mean, you know, to use the example and to them it is sacred territory and by even questioning you have profaned it so they don't want to read it out of fear but also just you, you know you don't touch this it's it, it, it you don't want to go there they don't even want to start that conversation exactly exactly and and in my definition of suffering which i call a universal principle the attachment yeah. to a presumed limited and mortal identity hmm. people are it, it's when when i challenge when either of us challenge someone yeah. with ideas that are antithetical to, to their belief system, yeah. they are facing an existence in their minds. Yeah. Are, even if it's just their unconscious minds, they are facing an existential threat to their lives. Yeah, and it's they're like, scared they're going to wind like, up like us in the sense of, well, look what happened. Look what happened to Rich. Now he's gone right. completely overboard. He's anti-Israel, which you're not in that no. in the sense they mean it. And I'm not anti-Christian. No. But but I don't toe the line anymore. I ask questions. And so for them, you're either with her, with us or against us. You know, it's like very yes. simplistic. Um, what, 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 I'm, what I'd be interested to turn the conversation to for a moment is that, <clears throat> you know, if you could push a button and change some of this, whether it's, you know, Wahhabist Islam in Saudi Arabia or the, the you know, the, the far right in Israel, A, how, how would one go about ever bringing about the kind of change of mind you and I have had in a wider circle? And B, in the best of all worlds, what would Israel look like now? In other words, if, if, if there hadn't been an assassination of a prime minister and if Moshe Dayan had been listened to when he said, we don't want to occupy these territories, and he was the general that invaded them, you know, back in the day, I can remember him saying, you know, we don't want to, we want to give up East Jerusalem. This is a, we don't want to get into this. There have been voices, even from the military in Israel that have warned Right. about the future that has now come to pass right. that we're never listened to but how would now that we're there and the the horse is out of the barn just take israel as an example for all we're talking about what would you do now if you could say okay here's what needs to happen if i could do i mean if it could be done i would like to see mixed schooling or or at least let the jewish side learn about the history of the Palestinians, let the Palestinians learn about the history of the Jews, which they have to a greater extent than the other side. Yeah. Uh, let them have cultural exchanges, let them mingle with each other and see this is not a monster. You know, since Israel started building that separation wall, mm. uh, the only time, for the most part, the only time Israeli Jews see Palestinians is if they happen to go into a Palestinian neighborhood, which is rare. Yeah. They're not really allowed to go into the West Bank. So that wall allows them to just to just uh, develop an imagination. So, so instead of seeing a human being, hmm. they have an image in their mind that grows with all the horrible things they hear. So they, yeah. so they create like a caricature of hmm. Palestinians in their mind. But there's got to be cultural exchange, exchanges, 
I would like to see both sides learn the other side's language mm. um, and just really learn the history. I know a man in the village of Nilin, mm. which is one of the villages in the West Bank that has been holding weekend demonstrations for years and years against the separation wall and against the the in, in, the incursion of Israeli settlements onto their land. Yeah, Nilin has lost about ninety percent of its land just by Israel taking it over the years. And this man, uh, Mohammed Amira, he's a village leader. He's a wonderful man. He once brought uh, a some Jewish scholars to Nilin to teach the people about the history of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm which of course would give them a better sense of why are these people acting so fanatical? Why are they treating us so, so horribly? You know, yeah. why do they automatically see us and think we're a Nazi? They're projecting images of Nazis mm-hmm. onto the Palestinians. And so those are among the things I would do. I do want to mention one thing because mm-hmm. that you brought up uh, that when you said I'm not anti-Israel. That's right. I'm pro-humanity and anti-occupation. Right. If the roles of the Israelis and Palestinians were completely reversed, I would still be pro-humanity, anti-oppression, but I'd be working on behalf of the mm. Israeli Jews because they would have been, they would be the ones oppressed. Yes. And, and so this is an important feature of language. People always refer to people, always, for the most part, refer to advocates for Palestinian rights as pro-Palestinian, as yeah. if they're also anti-Israeli. Yeah. And they're not. They're not doing it because they like Palestinians, although they do. They're doing it because Palestinians are being oppressed, yeah. and our tax dollars are really helping that. Yeah, oppression. exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's very it's very similar to the oppression over over centuries of the gay community in, in Western culture, non-Jewish culture, quote-unquote Christian culture, and you know, in terms of being not an issue of sexuality at all, but one of oppression. Well, similarly, this isn't a political issue, and it's not about the state of Israel. It's about any group of people who are being oppressed and bullied. You know, I I lived in South Africa for a year when I was making a movie out there at the end of the apartheid regime, and I had a film crew, and it was about 50% black and white and so forth and so on. And, um, you know, the, the, the politics of the situation were less interesting to me just than the second class citizenship of my black crew members vis-a-vis the white crew members. And that was in a film community that was more enlightened than perhaps than most of the culture, but it was very, very real. And of course that rooted back into the reformed Calvinist tradition from which I came, which had a, a biblical mandate first to enslave with the Dutch Jesus India company that also had a lot to do with the foundation of New York and the US and so on, but then gave this same theological spin so I want to I want to turn to the kind of rationale besides the us and them humanistic dilemma of standing up for everybody. There's a peculiarity, it seems to me, that creeps in when and I'm going to use bastardized English word here. But when you religiousize this issue, so on top of everything else, right, bullying and oppression, this is God's will. Now we're really out into territory where, for instance, 70 percent of the evangelicals are saying Trump still won the election and it was stolen, not because of the evidence, but because they feel God is manifesting themselves through this leader. It seems to me that in Israeli society, you know, you've gone to the next notch because now there's this group of of people in Israel who also believe that this is sort of a, a, a divine manifest destiny. And then how do you discuss with that? How do you, whether it's Christians in America or in Israel, what do you, how do you answer that? Well, I'll give you an example with my identical twin brother. I have had discussions with him about 
you know, what Israel is doing to the Palestinians and some of the history. And yeah. whenever I and I've always been able to easily refute his positions with documented evidence from the Israeli state archives, with yeah. from state, statements by David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding father, yeah. by Yitzhak Rabin. And whenever I show him that he's historically and intellectually wrong, his mm. retort is always, well, the Torah, the Torah states clearly that God promised the lands of the Jewish people. So there, end of discussion. Yeah. And so when religion, you're right, when religion enters into it, you're, you're speaking about a whole different dimension of mind that is beyond the rational mind. It's, yeah. it's, it, it, and it's so, it, it's almost superstitious. So it's so hard to get people to believe that, well, maybe you should investigate the history by reading a history book rather than believing what you think God says, because God is almighty and all powerful. It's just so hard to get beyond that. And again, yeah. it's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, and again, it's fear, fear of the unknown, fear mm. of, of uh, doing something that you'll be punished for by the Almighty, by the, yeah. by the invisible hand of God. Yeah, it's, and it's a very the funny difficult thing story. is that, you know, Dr. Sievert Koop, who was Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General that I ran around the country with stirring up the anti-choice and anti-abortion movement, he was a devout evangelical Calvinist. And, you know, I shudder to say this, but for instance, he believed God's hand in history was so manifest that somehow the Holocaust itself had been God's will. Otherwise, how would you get all the Jews back to Israel? I mean, really, now here's an educated man, one of the leading surgeons in the world. But when you suddenly, it's almost like one part of his brain, it all worked like everybody else's brain. Then you get into that area and it just flips. And suddenly he's looking at history through the grid of a theology, which if you stated it as fact, is literally insane. Right. I agree with you. Now, and so he, like, because if God did do that, then we don't want to be worshiping this God anyway. And obviously it can't possibly be so. But when you have known rational, educated, leading people in areas, and you realize there's this little compartment of their brain that has nothing to do with the rest of the way they approach life, whether it's the school board or their children's education, whatever it may be, but you get there and boy, lights out. Now you're into a whole different realm. And unfortunately, there's a huge part of the American population now on the right wing Christian side where that part of their brain has flipped out and there's no way to appeal to it. It, just, it would have to be a conversion experience of the kind you sustained. Yes, I agree with you. You, you know, I have a friend. I haven't seen her in a while, but uh, she was a she was an educator. She, her, her, she had a her business was to educate other educators. And she appeared, she was on Oprah Winfrey's show many times, and yeah. she traveled all over the world uh, teaching educators how to instill critical thinking and self-confidence mm -hmm. and self-respect within their students. And she told me that all over the world, the only place where she was not welcome was middle America. Yeah. And she said that the people there would say, well, we don't want our children to think for themselves. We want them to think our thoughts. Yeah. And our was, way. You know, and our way, which was, of course, influenced heavily uh, in these parts of the United States by Christian, by their Christian fundamentalist doctrine. You know, moving so. ahead, sort of projecting to the future with your interest in the state of Israel and the whole human rights issues of Palestinians and the Jewish community there and so forth and so on. I mean, what are the kind of possible paths? What, like, okay, the peace path has been missed. Um, maybe it can, something can come back to it. Um, demographically, you have a Palestinian population having more children than the Jewish population. 
you have the Jewish population oppressing and taking a land of more and more Palestinians on the West Bank and, and, and so forth and so on. Relations sort of deteriorating. On the other hand, right now, you have a coalition government, bizarre, of a far-right Jewish uh, group and, a, and, and, and Arab politicians for the first time entering in. It seems like a strange, everything's been thrown in the air. How, how, how do the pickup sticks come down? I mean, what are the possible paths from worst case to best case? How do you see that? Well, you know, um, the one thing that's important to me is that a majority of Jew, American Jews under the age of 35 do not support the state of Israel. Yeah. So it's possible that, and, and they seem to be, the, the younger generation seems to be more politically active than uh, the generation before them. So yeah. we'll see, but there's a large movement uh, within the Jewish community in the United States among younger Jews. If yeah. not now, is probably at the vanguard, but there's also Jewish Voice for Peace that has a lot of young Jews. Um, so my hope is that they will eventually be able to influence uh, enough of society that things may change. And you know, with the internet and cell phones, with cameras, it's harder for Israel to hide what it does. And, and I, as a result, I've met a lot of people over the last, well, since uh, since Protective Edge, the Israel's attack on Gaza in 2014, mm. a lot of people were horrified at what they were seeing in the news. And yeah. they had never been interested or involved in the Israel-Palestine issue, but now they are. So yeah. I'm hoping that, so that's the, that's the optimistic point of view. Of course, while they're, you know, while they're growing in numbers, so are the right wing of Israel, and so is Israel's influence. I mean, none of these organizations that fight for Palestinian rights have anywhere near the financial power of mm. APAC, the American Israel Pol Public Affairs Committee, or mm. some of the other Israel proxies in the United States. And mm. Netanyahu, uh, most people don't realize this, but a number of months ago, Netanyahu is a very cagey political operator. Right. I do agree that he's like a, another Trump, but yes. he's, very, he's a lot shrewder. And mm. he he said that he has pretty much given up on the American Jewish community and is now embracing the the Christian evangelical community. Yes. And, and so, to, to which I would just reply, well, you know, his nickname being Bibi, you know, good luck with that. Because yeah. these folks are not to be relied upon. And would you please restudy their theology that in the end has you all being incinerated when Jesus comes back. And sooner or later, they will turn against you and Jews because right. there is such a thing as inherited anti-Semitism. And this is the church that came from Martin Luther and the Reformation. And just right. check out how that all worked out for Germany. Well, so from this, the is a fool, this is a fool's paradise. I agree with you. But from the Jewish pro-Israel point of view, they're happy to take the money and the support of the Christian evangelical because they're a bunch of friars. That's yeah. the Yiddish word for sucker. And, yeah. you know, John Hagee has said, you know, one of the leaders of. Sure. The, OK, John Hagee has said that Hitler was a half breed Jew and that he was a hunter sent by God to shepherd the Jews to the Holy Land. Right. Kind of kind of what you said earlier. about how Dr. The Holocaust, Coop. Yes. Right. right. Now, now what John Hagee is doing and he's a hero in much of Israel. But yeah, and a hero doing, in the evangelical right wing that sort and, of right. looks to him for leadership on how do we what are how are we supposed to react all right that. and our Ariel settlement, which is one of the largest Jewish settlements, they named their conference center after John Hagee. But what's ironic is Hagee is comparing Hitler to Moses, except yeah. Hitler was successful in shepherding the Jews. Yeah. Whereas, you know, but uh, so it's it's just such a it's mess. It's bizarre. 
it's, it's bizarre, bizarre. And, and it's kind of awful too because it cashes in on the historical ignorance on so many levels you know one level the the evangelical community is completely ignorant on and i'm guessing that in israel you know in in right-wing circles this isn't much advertised either is that the zionist movement coming out of of europe originally was not only of the left but it was secular and it had very little room for any kind of interpretation of God's will and so forth. In fact, one of the ironies is, is some of the original Jewish Zionist thinkers were people who saw the Jewish return to Palestine, which at that time was theoretical, nobody was doing it, as a means to liberate the Palestinians from the Ottoman Empire. Because, because the, at that point, the Zionist movement had a very strong, zealous human rights component from what would be regarded as the secular humanist left today, people sort right. of more like you, if I could put it that way, they their idealism of, of escaping the endless pogroms and all this other thing was also tinged by, hey, and by the way, when we get there, we're going to liberate the oppressed Arab population that is under the thumb of the Ottoman Empire and the Turks and sort of Lawrence of Arabia style, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We're going to make common cause with Palestinians and Arabs against the Ottoman Empire, which was seen as an oppressive authoritarian, you know, horrible oligarchical regime from a foreign power. I mean, just think of, of that as opposed to what we're thinking now. You know, they saw themselves as liberators of the very people who are being oppressed now, in addition to coming finding a place for themselves. But none of it was related to the Torah or the Religion. Bible. Right. It was a completely, it was completely on a basis of secular and historic ties right. had nothing to do with God's will. None of the none of these folks at the beginning were saying, well, God's calling us back. And until 1948, the only ally Israel had that was reliable was the Soviet Union, because they understood this leftist humanist beginning. Right. Then and all of a also... sudden, now it's all God's will and, they, and religion, as if somehow it had always been that way. So even that part of the history is falsified in the evangelical community. By the way, there's a parallel and I know I'm talking too much, this is your interview, but I'll just throw this in. And that is how many evangelicals want to admit that when we went out with the pro-life cause, the anti-abortion cause in the 1970s, the people who most opposed us were other evangelical leaders who said, that's a Roman Catholic issue, we're pro-choice. And that oh. includes Billy Graham, Dr. Criswall of the Southern Baptist Convention, who was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He would cite Bible verses showing that fetuses were not uh, human beings, that they were in development. We had to fight that battle. Now, you talk to evangelicals, you'd think that being anti-abortion had been part of the thing from the beginning. It never was. Right. Well, wow. I think there's a similarity with Israel when you realize that the, the Zionism that came out of, of Europe in, uh, before you have uh, the state of Israel often was not only from the left, but it was secular and it was humanistic and it was universal and it embraced the idea of the common humanity. And that's all gone. I don't know why. Where did it go? Why did it change? Uh, that was what you're referring to as the spiritual Zionism of uh, Martin Buber and Judah right. Magnus, Judah Magnus, who, who was the founder of the Hebrew University, and right. Ahad, Ahad Ha'am, who was also whose real name was Asher Ginsberg. Ahad yeah. Ha'am means a man of the people. Now, Ahad Ha'am in the late 1800s warned that many of the Jews, and there weren't that many, but the Jews who were coming to Palestine were coming with a with a colonialist, imperialistic attitude. They were looking down 
on the native people, on the Palestinians, and treating yeah. them as if they were serfs or or inferiors. And he mm-hmm. warned, he warned years before there was any huge problem that this was going to be a huge problem. Yeah. I, I also want to point out that if you read Theodore Herzl, the founder of yes. political Zionism, which supplanted spiritual Zionism, who, mm-hmm. who you're mainly referring to, his movement, Herzl detested religious Jews. Yeah. If, you, if, if I were to show someone some of his writings and say, who do you think said that? The first thing they would say is Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And if I said no, then they would say something like, well, Joseph Goebbels or, or, or Heinrich Himmler. Yeah. But, but it was Theodore Herzl who detested Jews, uh, religious Jews. So yeah. that, that, move, that movement has gone through so many permutations. But what's very interesting is that most Jews were not interested in Zionism. They yeah. rejected it. And all religious Jews, pretty much, even Reformed Jews, saw Zionism as heresy against Judaism because yeah. it was a nationalist movement that replaced God's will with man's effort. Yes, I remember God. that even from my childhood because my father would tell me that because my parents believed that the restoration of Israel, you know, 1948 marked the fulfillment of a Christian prophecy. Yeah. And now we were so much closer to Jesus coming back. But right. then he would say, well, of course, the religious Orthodox Jews don't agree with that as if somehow that showed they were less enlightened than Christians and we were the real right. Israel. That would even be used as an argument to say we were the real Israel, we being Christians. I mean, right. it's crazy. The whole thing is just a mare's nest. Yeah, exactly. It, it really is. And it's so, con- you know, a lot of people say that, oh, oh, I, I don't want to talk about the Israel-Palestine issue. It's so complicated. It's yeah. not complicated. It's yeah. one yeah. people stealing land and oppressing another people yeah. who don't want their land stolen and who are resisting the oppression. That's all it is. But because of all these religious and ideological ideas and fake narratives and fake news that yeah. enter the picture, it just boggles people's mind. And unless they study the history, which anyone can do if they really want to, but unless they study the history, they're not going to be able to alleviate their confusion. Tell us a little more about what you go into specifically. Hold your book up again, wake up and reclaim your humanity. And for people watching, the reason I'm not holding up Rich's book is because I read it on Kindle and I don't have a hard copy here. Okay, so what I would like to do now is just unpack the book a little bit Tell us what this book is about. Okay, well, it's a series of essays. Uh, In the preface, the very beginning of the book, I point out how difficult it is to convince people, even with irrefutable evidence, that Mm. their beliefs might not be 100% correct. And I want to jump in there and tell people who are watching, who are former evangelicals, who have family, who've been voting for Trump, who come from backgrounds like me, that this book is, you know, don't think, oh, well, this somehow is about Israel. And, you know, no, this book is about anyone and any anything that has that victimology and comes from that background of we versus them. So I'm just throwing that in. This is perfect right. for people who read my work. Right. Thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the preface talks about how uh, how attached to ideas people become, even when they've never really investigated the mm-hmm. ideas and how even when they're presented with irrefutable evidence from mainstream sources, you, they don't budge. In their right. Ideas. And or an evangelical Christian whose daughter turns out to be a lesbian and they're still saying she chose it and it's a sinful lifestyle when they watched right. her grow up and knew she was a lesbian when she was 10 years old. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter, yes. even if it's in your own family staring you in the face. 
Right. And again, it's because people become attached to these ideas that are part of their precious identity. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, I claim that that precious identity is an illusion mm. because I claim that it's just an idea. It's an idea that I was Jewish. I'm not putting down Judaism and I'm not putting down Jewish culture. I have a great appreciation for it. Or Christianity but, and Christian culture. But what I say is I was I always thought I was a Jew, but I mm. was never a Jew. I was a human being. Yeah. who was brought up within a Jewish culture and yes. who had had appreciation for, for the culture and for some of the wisdom within the religion. And I would say exactly the same thing about my evangelical background. Exactly. I, still look at, I still look at a lot of the teachings of Jesus and I'm saying, you know, I wish that's how we lived. Right. There's good things here. I also see the crazy parts of the Bible. That's a different discussion. But that said, I see myself first as a human being right. and not laboring under the identity with, that I somehow inherited or was indoctrinated with. We, we, and, I, and there are a lot of us out there who feel this way, by the way. You're not alone in this, and nor am right. I. It's right. just we, we often don't have the levers of power. Correct. And, and what I want to add is when you go from being a Jew or a Christian to being a human being who has an appreciation for their the, the religion or ideology they were brought up with, mm -hmm. then, you're, then you have the freedom to also look at outside of your religion yes. that you were brought and be able to appreciate the wisdom there and be able to criticize things within your own uh, religion or ideology that you find uh, incorrect or inaccurate. So you have that freedom. And so in that book, what I do is- I so That's explain, the first essay. Now tell us more what's in there. Uh, well, the, the, uh, well, the first chapter after the preface hmm. is titled, Willful Blindness is a Crime Against Humanity. Right. And so, for example, um, you know, a lot, and again, using Israel-Palestine, but we could use any, you know, any example, but a lot, a lot, well, me, using myself as an example, I was willfully blind. I could easily have studied the history. I could easily have followed up on what some of my, some of my very intelligent, honest friends used to tell me, no, Israel's oppressing the Palestinians. Israel's using disproportionate force. I wouldn't believe it. I would think, well, maybe they're anti-Semites because they, the, yeah. you know, in this case, they weren't Jewish or maybe they're just really stupid, <laughs> you know, and uh, because I would always find an excuse so I wouldn't have to look. And so that was willfully, I was willfully bl being blind. I could have. Yeah, they always find excuses to never deal with what you're saying, but somehow right. dismiss you. Well, you know, maybe his parents were too harsh or he's angry or right. somehow he's flipped out or he's bitter or he turned against it, you know, his own people for uh, it's any reason except the actual argument you're presenting. Right. That's you're what right. nobody will deal with. Right. Exactly. So so in the first few chapters, what I do is I go through my state of mind before I had this transformation or awakening. I go through my state of mind. I go through the uh, second Lebanon war and the history you know, of Jewish, of, of Jews being persecuted. Mm. And then I go through uh, how I started because of my friend, my Jewish friend calling me on the phone and letting me rant and rave for two hours, how that would, opened up a space for me to be able to start looking a little more closely and the willingness to read a book by a Jewish author. And yeah. then I go- By the way, hold your book up again while you're talking about it. I wanna keep seeing the cover. Okay. okay. So, so then I, uh, I followed my friend's advice and I went to the library. Now, Frank, what I did was in that state of mind, I said, all right, maybe there's something I don't know about Israel-Palestine, but I'm only gonna read a book by a Jewish author because mm -hmm. if I don't read a book by a Jewish author, 
who knows, I might be reading a book by an anti-Semite, you know, and I won't be able to trust what they say because yeah. they might be critical of Israel only because they have a grudge against Jews. Yeah. So, so I went to the library and I ended up taking out a couple books and uh, the set, the first, n- neither of the books I read at first, well, no, actually the first book was by Baruch Kimmerling, one of the authors, one of the professors that my friend yeah. Sam had recommended. And I found it interesting, but it didn't really move me that much. Hmm. But then I started reading a book by Norman Finkelstein, who's a very controversial character hmm. and a, a, a very meticulous researcher who has been pretty much on his own up till about 10, 15 years ago as a Jew against the Jewish world that embraced Israel, someone yeah. who was willing to speak out and not pull any punches. So while reading his book, I went through this series of emotions, as I said, and I came out on the other end and realized my common humanity with other people. But then I realized I had to share what I knew, hmm. that what I had discovered was so important, uh, <clears throat> that, and, that, that what, and that was so, what was so important was that I had been living an illusion. Hmm. I had this false idea that I was this Jewish person who had to embrace the history of Jewish victimization and who had to be loyal to Israel no matter what Israel did and who had to rationalize the killing of children you know, no matter what it was, I had to rationalize anything yeah. Israel did was because of the Palestinians, right? So then I said, well, in order to share my experience with people, I need to share the history. I need to debunk some of the major ideas they have mm. about the Israel-Palestine issue. So, and then you do that. And, and yes. I won't make you hold your book up anymore. I just wanted people to really see it. Um, a question, you know, that I want to throw in here from one of the people who's watching is... Uh, Richard, how do you see the commonality between what happened to the American uh, Indians, the Native Americans, and white Europeans, and the Israel situation today? You know, it's the same issue. It's one people oppressing another people, one seeing another people, one people seeing another people as less than human and mm-hmm. rationalizing it. So, for example, you you alluded to this earlier. A, a lot of Jews saw the Palestinians as, you know, s- savages who could be possibly whose life could be improved. Maybe they couldn't come up to the level of being a Jew, but we could, you know, we could enlighten them, you know, with more, uh, you know, with more modern ideas. And it was that way to a certain extent with the the United States and its treatment of the American Indians. The American, you know, a coyote was worth more, the the skin of a coyote was worth more than an Indian at at one point in American history. But, you know, the oppression of the Indian is always, or the oppression of indigenous people throughout the world, it's always rationalized. We're doing it for their own good. You know, they're, they're savages. And if we don't do it, they're going to prevent our society from blossoming. Well, and then in the Christian context, it was that, you know, whether it's the conquistadors or anything else, we'll pause once in a while and bring in a monk or a priest or a preacher or an evangelist because we're also, I mean, after all, you know, my dad went to Hampton Sydney College in Virginia and I toured the college maybe 20 years ago and was a speaker there. He's still one of their most famous alumni and as an evangelical and the church is divided with the pews below and then up above there's a slave gallery where the young gentleman who came to the school would bring their personal manservant slave, a house slave, and he was allowed to sit up in the gallery and benefit from the gospel before returning to his duties a little later. So on, wow. in addition to which, when you get the Christian mix of it, 
in our racist past, it was somehow further justified. Yes, they may be enslaved and shot if they try to escape, but in the meantime, it, at least we've had an opportunity to present them with the gospel. Right. So, so you know, you get again this, you know, you put in the religious twist, and it goes from being inhumanity to a real horror show because now right. you have a level of hypocrisy that's just mind-boggling. You right. know, we've, we've exposed the slave to the teaching of Jesus who said that, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to treat everyone as ourselves. I mean, you know, you, you come in a full circle. And of course, uh, you, you know, in, in a way, this idea of civilizing the native goes into all colonial powers. And, and it's a way of, of making sure we do not get in touch with what is what we are really doing. It's a way of... I call it rationalization, but it's a way of avoiding looking in the mirror right. and seeing what we're really doing. Yes. And, and that's what you and I do. We present people with a mirror. And of course, uh, I'll, I'll speak for myself. In most cases, people don't want to look in the mirror. So I want to so remind people, too, that if they miss this conversation or only got part of it, that they can go back and see this as a pod, listen as a podcast or watch on YouTube or back on Facebook or on Twitter or all these other means. I also want to ask you how people can get in touch with you. And we will post this information, but go ahead and say it as well. Uh, well, they can go to my Facebook page, Richard Forer. Mm -hmm. uh, they can go to my website, uh, richardforer.com, although I don't do too much on the website. Uh, my books are available at various online Places. venues. Sure. Yeah, Amazon in particular. Yeah. Uh, so and I hope you, are, and we'll be posting this conversation everywhere, but of course, Rich, please feel free to post it on your own sites as well, Facebook and anywhere else. Uh, you know, we don't have any proprietary interest in this, and I hope you share it because I will, I will. spread this as wide as we can. So this is uh, Frank Schaefer, and you're watching In Conversation with Richard Forer, and his book is Wake Up and Reclaim Your Humanity. Uh, it speaks as much to former evangelicals or Roman Catholics or Mormons as myself, as it does to the situation he writes about, because Rich and I have discussed this as a universal problem and you mix in religious fundamentalism and a theocratic idea. And now we've really got an issue. Right. So I hope we can have you back, Rich, to talk more. We've just- I'd love to, Frank. I'd love and to. And I, well. I really, really thank you for your time. And, um, you know, uh, thank you so much for what you're doing and all the issues and questions you bring up. And, and I hope people watch and rewatch and share this. And please like the Facebook page, um, both Rich's and mine, if you want to share this and come back again, we will be doing more discussions. Rich, thank you very much for taking Thank you, time. Frank. I appreciate thank it. You. All right. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com. <laughs>